discover more compassionate relations with human beings, but how can we develop compassionate relations with the other creatures with whom we share this planet? There's an us before the wound, there's an us before oppression, and let to be pleasure is a way that we tap down into that. Welcome everyone to the Total Liberation Podcast. I'm your host, Mexi, and today we're speaking with conservation writer Jared Kakura about a subject I'm very interested in, trophy hunting, the wildlife trade, and sustainable use. If people aren't aware, my own master's and doctoral work looked at the contradictions involved with capitalist market-oriented conservation or neoliberal conservation, as well as the colonial and neocolonial legacies of conservation here and globally. So this subject really dovetails with much of my work, and I have colleagues who work on the issues of poaching and the illegal wildlife trade or wildlife crime. So I've been wanting to do a series on this for a while, and it was just very serendipitous when Jared approached me with the pitch for this episode. On his blog, The Wild Things Initiative, Jared has been writing about the organizations and philanthropists behind promoting this route to quote-unquote conservation in the global south, but particularly in Africa. And this is where he exposed a $2 million disinformation campaign around trophy hunting and sustainable use. So you can find links to his work in the show notes, as well as some literature on colonial and neoliberal conservation and some alternatives like indigenous-led conservation and convivial conservation coined by Busher and Fletcher, which we mention in this episode. I made a video on the debates around market-oriented and colonial fortress conservation called Conserving Half the Earth Won't Save Us, which I've also linked for anyone interested, kind of digs into a lot of my work in there as well. So thank you to our patrons who make the show possible. If you'd like to contribute and join our bi-monthly Discord calls, please go to patreon.com slash total liberation. But now let's get into the episode. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Jared Kakura. I am a conservation writer. What I do is I investigate and report on the organizations and systems that are essentially enabling the current biodiversity crisis. Um, so I run a blog on Substack called wildthingsinitiative.substack.com. So you can check me out there. Um, I've also started doing a little bit of commentary as well on wildlife issues, which I try to bring a leftist perspective to. And what I'm, again, trying to do is just bring more attention to the economic and political ideology that's underpinning a lot of the wildlife conservation policies that we have today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I am so thrilled that you're doing this work. It's incredibly important. I was just saying to uh, Jared off air that my own work has really dovetailed with a lot of, of this kind of exposés of, of the wildlife trade and trophy hunting, etc. Because um, I do work on market-based conservation and this kind of falls into that realm. Um, and yeah, I mean... 
as we'll talk about today, it's gross on so many levels. So I'm just very happy to see you doing this work and getting this information out there because I think that, I mean, I know that a lot of it is largely hidden from the general public. So I guess I'll start with how did you become involved in exposing this, exposing the actors and the corporations involved in uh, trophy hunting and the wildlife trade and this idea of sustainable use more broadly? Uh, this really wasn't supposed to be anything. I essentially just started a blog back at the end of 2019. Um, All I wanted to do was just have a place where I could write and express myself about just things, essentially what I thought was dumb um, within wildlife conservation. Um, Being someone that uh, had a general interest in wildlife, um, I, again, being raised in the US as well, you've always heard, oh, killing is conservation. Mm-hmm. And you grow up and you think, follow the science, this is what the science says, blah, blah, blah. And eventually you start looking at the science and you go, oh, you know what? The science is actually saying killing isn't the best thing, but there's this whole economic philosophy behind it. And essentially what ended up happening after I started writing for a couple months is then I uncovered and um, kind of snowballed into this whole issue of investigating the organizations and the scientists themselves that are promoting that killing for conservation. But yeah, now it's become something completely different from where I started. Where I started before, it was mainly just, oh, I I enjoy wildlife, I enjoy animals, I don't particularly care for these wildlife uh, policies uh, and how conservation works. And now it's turned really into Um, more political stuff, um, which I did not envision happening at all. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. I mean, I guess I said corporations earlier, but you're right. Yeah, organizations, right? All the big conservation organizations get behind this kind of stuff and are very involved with neocolonial type conservation activities in the global south. Um, But to start off, I wanted to maybe set set the scene for people who aren't really aware of how conservation does work globally. Um, so could you briefly lay out the kind of colonial capitalist history of conservation spaces and trophy hunting across Africa? I think that's where you, you focus most. Is that correct? Yeah. When we talk about trophy hunting, there's going to be so many different people with different perspectives on this, um, especially over on the pro-trophy hunting side. They love to say that they're more nuanced about it. But essentially, when we are talking about trophy hunting, um, the majority of trophy hunting is simply just wealthy Americans flying to eastern and southern Africa and uh, killing animals for fun there. Mm-hmm. Um, and ag- again, Africa, the as the continent itself with um, its colonial past, was brought up as a uh, elite playground for um, Europeans and Americans. And there's actually a really good article that came out in Grist recently written by Joseph Lee. And he goes to this and he gives a pretty good um, summer, summary of um, how we got to this point. But if you go back to the early 20th century, you have the first national park created um, on the African continent. Uh, and this was uh, basically the evolution of what was going on in the United States at the time. Uh, with Yellowstone and Yosemite and those national parks being created. Mm -hmm. Um, And it came at a really interesting time when many Europeans uh, were essentially losing their connection to uh, the outdoors and to nature due to capitalism and industrialization. 
So you have these spaces um, being essentially uh, manufactured uh, on the African continent in these different countries, specifically for uh, wealthy Europeans. Um, what they would say is they're protecting wildlife, they're protecting nature, um, but it's their playground. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, what the colonizers, colonizers are essentially able to do is they can push indigenous people off the land, um, which is uh, a twofold strategy uh, that makes it easier to control the people in those countries, uh, preventing them access to their livelihoods. Um, and then it also gives the people that now own the land um, capitalist ventures. Mm -hmm. uh, so trophy hunting is one of the big ways that uh, people can make money doing that. So it's not just a playground for wealthy Europeans and Americans. It is also a profit venture for other um, colonizers from Europe. Mm -hmm. And now leading up to today, uh, we have basically the same thing going on, um, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa with uh, the Eastern and Southern nations. But we've somehow now um, been tricked into thinking what's going on has conservation value. Um, but not much has changed in the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for that history. And um, yeah, my own work focuses on uh, North America, and, and I did some work in Southeast Asia as well. And, uh, you know, it's a similar story. It's, it's not so much trophy hunting, but the same kind of colonial capitalist history of conservation that, as you mentioned, started in uh, the United States uh, has been exported elsewhere through colonialism. <laughs> and um, you're absolutely right that, it, you know, for the most part, it involves kicking out indigenous peoples who we know, I mean, we know that the majority of the remaining biodiversity on the planet is managed by indigenous peoples on their lands. And uh, so we kick out these you know, people who have been managing their spaces for eons, <laughs> um, and then come in, draw boundaries around it, make sure that the only people who are able to use, quote unquote, use the area are people who are going to set up big commercial ventures. So it's really, you know, issuing this kind of traditional livelihood for a, a capitalist economy or, you know, capitalist ventures within the spaces and it just changes our relationship to these spaces so drastically right like now we can't actually engage with the space as a home or as a space that we can live in reciprocity with it's it's a space that we need to pay money to visit um and then we go home and we live in our capitalist towns and cities and think that that's that's doing conservation right so yeah it is pretty telling that it's majority white uh, travelers, I would say probably mostly male as well, uh, coming to do these things in these former colonies, right? So um, yeah, so I wondered if you could describe the concept of sustainable use for our audience and how it relates to what we just spoke about, trophy hunting and the wildlife trade. Yeah, if you actually go through a lot of my work, um, you'll see that in the past, I refer to things mainly as trophy hunting or wildlife trade. And uh, now I mainly refer to those two terms under the umbrella of sustainable use. Um, and sustainable use, I, this is a major problem that I think is currently going on in wildlife conservation, is how people misunderstand uh, what those words actually can mean in different contexts. 
uh, you can go back and what a lot of the trophy hunting folks like to say is sustainable use basically was an idea that came up through the 1970s, 1980s, and it was um, what they view as um, the opposite of fortress conservation, where instead of indigenous people being kicked off the land, uh, sustainable use is, oh, indigenous people are allowed to use these resources again. Um, but it, essentially, you can just look at that as rich people saying, poor people can now use resources as long as they do it sustainably. Um, so that sustainable use was using something sustainably. Um, if you actually fast forward to the 1990s, we now see sustainable use being introduced to the um, IUCN, specifically with uh, regard to wildlife conservation and extractive practices like trophy hunting and wildlife trade. Now, this is where it gets a little convoluted, but um, essentially in the United States uh, in 1988, we had something called the wise use movement. And that was an AstroTurf campaign uh, manufactured and created by uh, extractive industries. So the ranching lobby, oil and gas, mining, uh, timber industry, all these folks they really didn't like the environmental regulations uh, that came out of the 1960s and the 1970s. And they were having a tough time fighting these uh, regulations. So what they did is they basically paid a bunch of people to go in front of TV cameras and say, oh, I'm a poor rural farmer. Uh, the EPA, the Clean Water Act, all this stuff is harming me. Um, and we need wise use. And um, for some folks, they're going to hear wise use and be like, oh, wise use, that's a term from the 1930s from forestry and how to sustainably uh, run the timber industry. And that's actually incorrect. The wise use movement specifically was called wise use because the guy who started it thought it made for a good headline. And he said that wise use was short enough to run in a newspaper headline and get people's attention. And at the same time, the people in the IUCN who were promoting trophy hunting and wildlife trade and trying to get them ex accepted as legitimate conservation tools were working with the wise use movement here in the US. Um, so there's a bunch of conservative think tanks, which people typically think are doing climate denial, but they were also at the time promoting what would become sustainable use. So these people at the IUCN actually introduced wise use in the 1990s first and wise use was supposed to say okay it's not just we want people to be able to use resources wisely we think that the use of a resource itself constitutes conservation and that was totally new um of course what ended up happening is the wise use movement blew up here in the us in in the terms that people caught on that it was an astroturf campaign and that it wasn't actually rural people fighting the government. It was big multinational corporations funneling money into media campaigns. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the people at the IUCN actually told me, oh yeah, due to the um, bad media attention that the term wise use was getting, we just pivoted and we called it sustainable use. <laughs> um, so there's so many layers between that, but essentially, so many people like to say sustainable use equals uh, rural and indigenous people having the right to use their resources. And that's absolutely not true when we talk about trophy hunting and wildlife trade. Um, sustainable use 
as it came out of the 1990s from the IUCN, is essentially a palatable term for unpalatable practices like trophy hunting and wildlife trade. Mm. Um, again, it's instead of saying um, uh, poor rural indigenous people can use resources, it's now wealthy foreigners can use resources all around the globe, and they're allowed to do that because that is de facto conservation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I just absolutely bristle whenever I hear sustainable anything, <laughs> but especially sustainable use or sustainable development, because, you know, from the get go, these terms have been so heavily co-opted into being just sustaining business and, you know, economic development and not so much the rights of indigenous people, not so much the rights of nature, animals, etc. So yeah, uh, unsurprising that sustainable use uh, is being used this way. Uh, I'm wondering if we could define wildlife trade as well for people who aren't really familiar. Yeah, the way that I view wildlife trade under the umbrella of sustainable use is essentially the commercial practice, um, which is, uh, again, we're not talking about just indigenous people that are um, um, either hunting or foraging um, for wildlife and wildlife products and then trading it within the community, something like that, what essentially is like the greenwashing way. Um, the people that brought wildlife trade into sustainable use were actually crocodile farmers. Mm. Um, they just happened to be crocodile farmers with PhDs. Um, <laughs> so that's why they were in the IUCN. Um, and to them, wildlife trade was, oh, ranching or um, hunting animals from the wild. Um, and then using those uh, wildlife products, whether it's skin, bones, fur, um, anything, and selling it for a profit, but not just going to a small community and selling it for uh, actual use. It's selling crocodile skins to luxury fashion brands in Europe from Australia, mm -hmm. um, or it's um, elephant ivory, mm -hmm. um, taking that from the African continent and sending it over to Asia. Mm -hmm. and things like that so it's just more um don't think of wildlife trade here or in this context as just oh yes it's what people do um when we see um uh either people at markets or in the developing nations as they call them um it's not actually people relying on this it's actually global supply chains um major corporations and um capitalist enterprises of either ranching, farming, or simply just taking wildlife from the wild. Yeah, I was going to say there's a whole black market involved in in the wildlife wildlife trade industry. I have a colleague who works on poaching um, and just kind of the wars between poachers and uh, conservation rangers and just how militarized that whole fight has become. Um, but you know, really exposing the fact that most of the people who are doing the actual poaching within this kind of industry are often poor people who have been dispossessed from their land uh, because of conservation spaces. And, you know, they're the ones who are putting their lives on the line to do this, but they're not the ones who are bringing in the majority of the money, right? Like, you know, the, the kingpins are not the ones who are actually on the ground uh, doing that kind of really dangerous and uh, awful work. Um, I mean, if you can call it work, you know, but I think you're right that when people hear wildlife trade, they might think that it's something really legitimate. Um, but there's 
yeah, there's definitely a lot of layers to that. So what would you say are the social and ecological implications of this kind of sustainable use approach to conservation and and maybe of market-based conservation more broadly? Well, I think for starters, um, in no way under the under like a conceivable definition of sustainable is sustainable use sustainable mm-hmm. um, and let alone any other market-based initiative. Um, and really we can even just look at trophy hunting and, and for trophy hunting, it's actually not very well studied at all. Um, perhaps the most well-studied um, trophy hunted species is the African lion. And um, there's a report from back in 2006, uh, which I always uh, bring up and I think is really telling because it says when um, these so-called experts are looking at the threats to lion populations and what's um, causing their decline, uh, they specifically do not rank trophy hunting with the other threats like prey depletion or habitat destruction. And they don't rank trophy hunting among these other threats because they can't tell the negative biological, or they can't differentiate between a negative biological consequence and a positive economic uh, benefit. And that's really telling right there. And I think anyone that's actually in, or like understands biology or, or ecology would understand very quickly that if you are artificially selecting against um, a uh, mature, or a uh, dominant or any successful individual from a population in very, very, very rare circumstances, is that going to be a benefit to the overall population? Mm -hmm. Um, So from the scientific standpoint, from the biological and ecological standpoint, sustainable use through trophy hunting and wildlife trade and um, that type of selection is not good. Um, And that it's not sustainable from that uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. And So that's then where, unfortunately, we have biologists and ecologists saying, oh, trophy hunting or wildlife trade um, is sustainable because of the economic benefits, Uh, which, unfortunately, even if there are, um, or even if there is profit or money um, changing hands, describing something as a benefit is uh, really simplistic, because from the social aspect, we know that neoliberal um, economic uh, ideology and the practices that go with it. So for instance, privatization of resources, um, strengthening of property rights, um, free trade, uh, deregulation of major industries, all those things may um, bring in a lot of money for some stuff, but from a social perspective, it's incredibly harsh on people that don't already have property or don't already have a lot of money. And that just leads to greater inequality. Mm-hmm. And it's so when you then add in the um, history of Africa's colonization and the dispossession of uh, indigenous people from resources and land, and then you throw in market based initiatives, which sure may generate money, but then only exacerbate inequality, mm-hmm. um, there's no way that. A, it's not sustainable bio- biologically, ecologically, and socially, um, which is really unfortunate. And um, for so much of trophy hunting and wildlife trade in um, the um, these African nations, you have places like Namibia, Botswana, South Africa, which are held up as these like gold standards and 
Um, these are the shining examples of how um, market-based initiatives work. And then you look at, say, like a global index of inequality, and those countries are right up there in the top um, most unequal countries. Um, so it, it's really unfortunate um, that some folks get to play off something being sustainable simply because it makes money. Mm -hmm. um, because really, from every aspect that you look at it, um, it's not sustainable at all. Mm -hmm. Right. It just sustains capitalism, right? It just sustains neoliberalism, basically. Um, I know that there's a lot of people who have made that argument that, uh, you know, these kind of market-based or neoliberal initiatives, the only thing that they really do is just, uh, you know, spread capitalism further and further into, you know, every reaches of the globe and, and you know, the realm, into the realm of conservation more broadly. Yeah, I, I know that uh, Bram Busher as well, who works on neoliberal conservation, I, I think he described it really well when he said that market-based conservation or this idea that capitalist conservation is going to save the world is basically that capitalism can be the solution to its own ecological and social contradictions, right? So we know that capitalism creates inequality. We know that capitalism degrades the environment and it, and it must do so, right? That's how the system functions. And so how can we possibly think that we can take what is causing the problem and just ramp it up and, and have that be the solution to the problem that it's causing is just such circular logic that that goes nowhere. Um, I think about, you know, the even like if people remember the Coca-Cola campaign to save the polar bears, right? And just think about that, like how much global pollution has the Coca-Cola company put out? How much of that pollution has contributed to climate change that is destroying the home of the polar bears? And then you think that this corporation then throwing money back at the problem that it is causing and not much money by the way it was only a couple million dollars in that whole campaign um you know how could throwing that money back at the problem really be the solution <laughs> they would have to if you know if they wanted to be sustainable they would have to shut down their production or just radically radically transform it so that it was you know actually carbon neutral and whatever which i don't think would be possible but when you think about something like trophy hunting um i mean first of all that relies on international flights right so wealthy people probably take a lot of them taking you know private jets whatever flying around the world i mean how is that sustainable in and of itself um and then getting into actually what they're doing and the fact that so much of you know the trophy hunting and wildlife trade industries like there is that kind of black market side of it as i mentioned i just i don't understand how that <laughs> could be considered sustainable uh ecologically and uh as you mentioned there are a lot of neocolonial elements to this as well where the organizations and the people who are in charge of operating these kinds of conservation uh, mechanisms are you know, wealthy or white people from the global north and kind of imposing this in these spaces that have always been colonized for, you know, to be these playgrounds for wealthy travelers from the global north, right? So just so many layers <laughs> to all of this. So thank you for uh, giving your thoughts on that. So in your blog, you really follow the money. And I was wondering if you could help us do that now. So how would you say that environmental philanthropy is connected to the decline of biodiversity in these spaces? I mean, I think the Coca-Cola example that you gave um, just hits the nail on the head there. Uh, what we have 
And, and again, if, if you were to look at my work and I call it a couple of specific organizations or essentially families that run charities. And we have to understand one thing of just like how the world works for rich people. Um, rich people don't want to pay taxes. And mm -hmm. uh, so what they do is they essentially um, partake in what they call philanthropy, um, but it's just philanthrocapitalism. Um, so essentially, they reduce their tax burden wherever they live, however they um, make their money, by funneling hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars um, into um, different charities, um, 503C organizations, things like that. And the whole point of doing that is uh, there needs to be some sort of a return on it. Uh, because again, these are rich people and they're extra greedy. Um, so they don't want to essentially just donate money. Um, if they didn't care about having money, they would have just paid their taxes. <laughs> uh, so they're, they either um, use this money to go to other organizations or they use their organization um, themselves to essentially mold and create favorable financial environments um, in different places. So uh, there's one of the organizations that I talk about called JAMA International. Um, they're a UK-based charity, and they kind of, um, they didn't necessarily pop out of nowhere, but in the last couple of years, they started funneling a lot of money um, into organizations that would promote trophy hunting and um, more generally sustainable use. And so for one, uh, Gemma International is um, a family organization. It's a family charity for uh, the Johansson family. They're just rich Europeans. So right there, by put putting money into that, they then reduce their tax burden. And then they get to use that money to promote sustainable use, which for them, it actually does bring a financial return in two ways. So even though capitalism is obviously destroying the planet, um, they uh, invest in these market-based initiatives, which again, just further promotes um, capitalism. And we continue on this perpetual cycle of more capitalism begets more environmental destruction, which begets more capitalism and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, they get to not live with these um, biological and ecological consequences. Uh, but they get to spread essentially the gospel of capitalism throughout all Southern Africa, Eastern Africa, and things like that. Um, and then, un unfortunately, people essentially in these countries and different organizations, they view that as um, essentially their survival. And uh, when you take away people's resources and you take away their livelihoods and you replace it with something, they're going to be in debt to that. Um, so it's, it just continues this, again, perpetual cycle of not just capitalism, but just keeping people indebted to it. Um, mm -hmm. And unfortunately, why I do rag on Gem International and what I've recently discovered is they also use their charity um, specifically uh, to fund, uh, or they were looking to fund investments in Mozambique to the tune of $10 million, uh, which... Uh, would just go into hunting concessions and they expected a financial return over 30 years. And the only way that they would make money was actually solely through trophy hunting. Mm. Um, so I, I, again, there's different layers just between rich people trying to reduce their tax burden, um, rich people trying to just spread the gospel of capitalism because that's what made them wealthy and that's what will continue to make them wealthy. And then there's 
uh, they're trying to just make more money directly, uh, which again is really unfortunate because the way that they're doing it are th is through things like sustainable use, which can have so many different consequences, but they get to play it off as look at all the good that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Just like Coca-Cola throwing a couple million bucks at polar bears, um, they get to say, Gem International is this world-renowned conservation organization. Mm -hmm. We're a charity. We fund rural livelihoods in Southern and Eastern Africa. Uh, we help wildlife and people. Um, that's the big one in conservation. Um, you can't just be about wildlife. You can't just be about people. You have to be about both. Um, and yeah, it, it's the most despicable form of greenwashing possible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And can we just talk about how gross this is for one, mi one minute? You know, can you imagine thinking, um, you know, where do I want to go on vacation this year? Not, you know, oh, I'd like to go and see these majestic animals and take their photographs. No, I'm going to go and shoot one of them, uh, not to eat it, not because I need the food or anything like that. I'm just going to waste their life and their body and just hang their head on a post like what like what is what drives a person to want to do that i just find it so colonial so patriarchal um and i mean it it is kind of the definition of this colonial ideology of just going to a different place and just dominating the land and the people and the animals and and whatnot um and here in north america as well it was a really colonial ideology that the europeans that came over thought that trophy hunting was the civilized thing to do and that indigenous people who were hunting for use and who were actually you know using every part of the animal that that was somehow savagery right like because trophy hunting there was apparently all these rules that you had to follow and it was kind of a big game right and if you did that then it just showed how civilized you were but actually hunting um you know subsistence hunting was considered uh just an abomination which is just so backwards i just it's it's almost laughable but you know obviously it's not funny the way that these policies were imposed because it meant that European trophy hunters over here um, were able to have their rights recognized in all of these conservation spaces. Meanwhile, indigenous people were kicked out and their subsistence hunting was banned. And that is considered conservation, right? It's just huge question mark. Um, but I think for a lot of people who grew up here, we don't really question the way that our conservation, I mean, I, I think a lot of us don't really know the history of our conservation spaces. We don't know um, how these policies were all enforced. But um, yeah, if you really dig into it, you really have to put a giant question mark around even just the concept of conservation in the West, if it's run in a capitalist way. And of course, this idea of sustainability, right? Like, what are we sustaining and how? Um, so again, thank you for that explanation. Um, I also wanted to ask you, because you make this connection in your writing as well, um, how sustainable use uh, is similar to climate denialism and to uh, tobacco disinformation. Yeah, this is where I lose a lot of people, and that's fine, um, because so many people want to hold on to the idea that trophy hunting and wildlife trades, and more generally sustainable use, is based on um, evidence and updated science and blah, 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 blah. And it's not. Um, so where I had previously mentioned sustainable use coming out of the Wise East movement here in the US, um, 
Uh, again, the YZ movement was a conglomeration of multiple extractive industries running an astroturfing campaign. And within that, you did have um, big oil and uh, big tobacco. Is just, Whenever we talk about climate denial, um, everyone always makes the connection. Well, they're just using uh, big tobacco's playbook. And you can go further. Before big tobacco, it was big lead. Um, but what we have is really what can be boiled down to anti-communism mm -hmm. um, with uh, the tobacco industry, with uh, the fossil fuel industry, um, both industries extracting massive amounts of, of profits and having massive amounts of consequences for that, whether through public health or um, through the environmental aspect. So what's the best way to reduce those negative consequences? What's the best way to get those industries um, uh, wrangled? Well, you need government intervention and you need strong regulations and things like that. Um, of course, here in the US and uh, everywhere else, Canada, the UK as well, um, anything doing uh, that has to deal with um, government regulations is demonized as communism. Mm -hmm. um, and it's limiting the um, invisible hand of the free market, blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And sustainable use is no different. Um, the trophy hunting and wildlife trade industries are industries. Um, they have negative consequences, um, as we had mentioned, ecologically and socially, but they have massive amounts of profits. And um, the same ideology underpins them. Uh, one of the uh, main grandfathers of climate denial is a man named Fred Singer. And you can actually go through Singer's work um, throughout history and it's really interesting how he will make these connections. And um, there's one issue where he was with a team of other scientists and they're trying to determine how best to save freshwater snails that uh, were dying due to pollution from nearby factories. And Singer, being the anti-communist climate denier that he was said, well, why should we tell these factories to stop doing anything? These freshwater snails have zero value. <laughs> exactly <laughs> and at the time um he was um and singer himself was a scientist so he that's what made him again like the grandfather of climate denial um because he could kind of come across as a scientific expert on it and you can even go further where um then you can go into something like commercial whaling and commercial whaling was absolutely horrible for whale populations across the globe. Um, that led to a kind of pseudo international whaling ban. And what is a ban? It's a form of government regulation. So people like Fred Singer actually tried to put together a conference and he tried to bring together other uh, people that were doing climate denial and that were doing tobacco disinformation. And he's trying to say, this is government regulation. We can't have this. We need to ensure that commercial whaling continues. Um, that one little conference did fail. But uh, what we would see is, again, you can stick with this theme of um, people that just essentially were against communism, wanted to kill animals for profit. Yeah. And there's a, a really interesting quote uh, from a Japanese whaling lobbyist where he says, now that the USSR has fallen, Greenpeace is the last of the communist movement. Wow. And so 
And it wasn't just Greenpeace. Uh, there's a term that these anti-communists would call environmentalists back in the day, and they would call them watermelons because they wow. would say that you're green on the outside, but you're red on the inside. Wow. And um, one of the biggest things that I learned just through my work, the a big turning point was that I uncovered a disinformation campaign run by trophy hunting groups. Within that campaign, uh, they weren't just spreading lies about trophy hunting, they were also spreading climate denial. I talked to folks um, who did climate uh, denial research. They pointed me towards uh, people that did tobacco uh, disinformation research, because again, that's where this came from. And then um, that was uh, a now ex-professor at University of California, San Francisco. And then he pointed me to this really great resource that I wish more people would use. And it's the Tobacco um, Industry Document Library. And during uh, the late 1990s, there was a lot of leaks, um, also through court cases where the tobacco industry was forced um, to divulge all of its, or not all, but many internal memos. And you can read through that. And the people that were promoting sustainable use at the IUCN we're literally working with people in the tobacco industry. And the tobacco industry had a couple um, reasons for this. For one, the tobacco industry is based on agricultural trade, which is one step removed from wildlife trade. Mm -hmm. And there's even a memo where they say uh, the orchid trade being banned in Thailand is the first um, consequence of the CITES bans on certain wildlife trade. Um, so they had a financial incentive for that. And even CITES is the main governing, essentially a governing body that um, uh, looks at wildlife trade globally. And one of the ex-leaders of CITES, he's a really big proponent of bear bile trade. Mm. And wouldn't you know, uh, there's documents from the Tobacco Institute where he's working with the Tobacco Institute's president on how best to approach CITES conferences to ensure that bear bile trade is not regulated and not banned. Mm. Um, and for folks that don't know, bear bile trade is literally just taking bears, sticking them in tiny cages and poking them in with holes and draining them through metal pipes uh, mm. to get their bile. And not only is it horrible from an animal welfare standpoint, but it's actually extremely unsustainable because it's led to a lot of um, illegal wildlife trade and poaching in the name of that industry. Mm -hmm. So bears have declined drastically due to that. And it, then you also have the other layer of we have not just here in the US, but across the globe, we have conservative think tanks. And these think tanks are funded by the tobacco industry by the fossil fuel industry, specifically to put out research and to promote policies with government officials that limit uh, industry regulation, and that promote capitalist uh, and neoliberal practices like privatization, property rights, and free trade and stuff like that. And again, you go through the tobacco documents, and there are folks at the IUCN who are considered uh, experts in um, even species like rhinos. And they're part of these conservative think tanks. And their publications which say that, oh, um, rhino horn trade is good. Trophy hunting of rhinos is good. Mm. Their publications are sandwiched in between climate denial rhetoric and tobacco disinformation about how secondhand smoke doesn't cause cancer. Mm. And 
people just have their heads in the sand when it comes to this. Um, we call what the tobacco industry did disinformation. Mm -hmm. We call what uh, the, the fossil fuel industry did denial. Yet for some reason, we call sustainable use evidence-based. It makes no sense. It's the mm -hmm. exact same thing. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do with a lot of my work is get people to actually connect the dots here. Um, the whole idea that something is evidence-based because it's coming from a biologist that says it's sustainable, yet that biologist is acknowledging that from a biological standpoint, it has negative impacts. But the only way that we can avoid those negative impacts is through an economic benefit. That's denial. Oh, it's just one big web of lies <laughs> when you really dig into it. Um, and it's it's very interesting. I mean, just this whole idea of sustainable use under capitalism, I think, is just a fraught idea in general. Um, I actually was able to sit in on some of the meetings of the Convention on Biological Diversity, and it was really, really shocking to me, I suppose, how these discussions went. Uh, there is obviously a very stark divide between the global north and the global south and the global north was really heavily promoting this idea of sustainable use and, um, you know, just the promotion of business as a route to environmental conservation. Um, but I think what is not often talked about, and and I was glad to see, you know, some of the um, observers who were different grassroots organizations who were able to get a seat did bring up these issues um, in the time that they had. Um, some countries from the global south also also brought this up, you know, like, how can we talk about sustainable use um, under neoliberal capitalism, where, you know, the economic system is predicated upon constant, ever expanding growth and on exchange value, not use value. So, you know, you have things like trophy hunting, where there is no use value to hunting that animal. It's purely just the value of exchange, like the profit that can be made um, to get people who want to do this to come out um so it has this negative biological uh consequence and negative ecological consequence but this quote-unquote economic benefit but you know in the system that is predicated upon growth how can we even talk about sustainable use <laughs> um when you know what we would have to use would have to expand at the same rate as capitalism is expanding indefinitely, which we obviously cannot do with finite resources on a finite planet, right? It's just none of this makes any sense. And yet we still have even at the highest level of, you know, international meetings, uh, we still have this kind of rhetoric and these kind of ridiculous debates happening. Um, so, you know, a lot of people are protesting these, these meetings, uh, like the COP meetings and things like that, because they just realize that, nothing is changing, right? <laughs> we're, we're just, we've been holding on to this idea of sustainable development for decades now, and nothing is changing and time is running out. So uh, I just feel like it's very clear that market-based conservation is not the answer. And I think that increasingly people are recognizing that. Um, but I wanted to pivot to maybe a, a, a lighter, a brighter note for our last couple of questions here. So I wanted to talk about solutions. And in your opinion, what do you think might be a more productive approach to biodiversity conservation than this kind of sustainable use idea? Well, you mentioned a name earlier, Bram Boucher. Um, mm -hmm. 
and he and another of his colleague, uh, Robert Fletcher, um, mm -hmm. they've been pushing something called convivial conservation. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, in, in terms of just any ideology out there, that's probably the best thing that we have. Um, and when I look at that, it looks to be like an actual legitimate and realistic alternative to these market-based um, initiatives and, mm -hmm. and especially something like sustainable use. And within that scope of convivial conservation, um, you have a couple different things. Um, from the economic aspect, they look at stuff through a post-capitalist lens. So what that actually looks like, whether that's socialism, eco-socialism, some variation of communism, uh, donut economics, um, that's to be determined. But essentially, um, there are things that we can do to get there. Um, and one of them is we actually need a redistribution of wealth. Um, and what, what we do have in the world right now actually is a redistribution of wealth. It's just from the poor to the rich. Mm -hmm. um, and we need the opposite of that. Um, so within convivial conservation, um, that's part, that's one of the um, major financial aspects. Um, there are way too many people with way too much money. And we need that money to go to people that actually need it. And guess what? Most of the people that need money and most of the people that need not necessarily just money, but um basic services healthcare, education things like that a lot of those people are living with and among wildlife mm -hmm. um so that's wonderful right there and um what you can do with the redistribution of wealth is again something like universal basic income um but stuff doesn't just have to be income related as i mentioned um just there are many people that i talk to who will agree with me about capitalism stuff but they come from more of the anarchist side uh i personally think that uh, we do need government structure to help with just basic services and to mm -hmm. ensure that communities everywhere um, get what they need. Mm -hmm. um, now, another aspect is of convivial conservation is more on the ecological side. And it's what I would describe as a 180 from fortress conservation. Now, many, con many conservationists right now say that sustainable use um, is opposed to fortress conservation, but that's absolutely not true. Um, and fortress conservation, just think about it. If you're a trophy hunting operator and you um, own a concession of land, what do you do to protect um, your wildlife that you own from being poached from those uh, dirty locals? You put a fence around it. Um, that's sustainable use, that's fortress conservation. Uh, and what convivial conservation says is, hey, instead of blocking off land and saying, this is for humans, this is not for humans. What we need to do is actually integrate how we live, um, both from like a mental and an actual infrastructure uh, level. Um, so we would actually expect more what we would call wilderness right now to have human uh, encroachment. And that would be okay. Um, we'd have humans um, living in these places. We'd have humans using these resources. And along with that, what we need to do is take our cities and our towns and our communities and essentially open the door to everything that we've let out um, or everything that we've kept out. So we need to ensure that actually there, there's more of a symbiosis between humans and non-human animals uh, we need uh, greener facilities. We need less concrete stuff like that. 
Um, so where people might be afraid and be like, oh no, we need to uh, protect, we need protected areas. We need um, areas with no human settlement and uh, no human encroachment, things like that. And that's how I um, used to think as well. But I also think about it this way, like if, what would I, what kind of a world would I wanna live in? Do I wanna live in just a concrete city and then have the ability to travel to somewhere that's green? Or do I wanna live somewhere that's green? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what it, um, my takeaway is from convivial conservation. And I'm excited to see how it goes. I think um, Fletcher and Boucher are doing a really good job promoting that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I've actually made a, a video about this if people want to check it out, um, just kind of going over the debates and things like that and um, thinking through what it might look like to have conservation outside of just protected areas, right? So what would it look like for our urban and suburban urban environments to actually um, be part of what we would consider conservation, you know, have conservation not just be something that happens out there far away from where we live, um, but actually integrated into our, our lives. And how do we actually live in our environments in a reciprocal way? I think that's something that, again, we've never really done um under capitalism and i'm not sure that it's possible under that economic system so this would involve you know much more broad uh restructuring of our society at large but yeah i do think that they've been really uh instrumental in uh getting this conversation out there i mentioned in the video that i made um that i think that indigenous-led conservation is a really really great example of convivial conservation. Um, and there's a lot of important work on that front happening across Canada. That's that's where I am. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, the in- Indigenous Circle of Experts uh, have partnered with uh, people at the University of Guelph and um, actually people all over Canada. And there's so many Indigenous-led protected areas that have been uh, declared over the last several years. And um yeah, I mean, I think land back is a huge part of moving away from this colonial capitalist vision of conservation that has not been working whatsoever. I mean, biodiversity has continued to decline um, and climate change is just, you know, ever expanding. So, um, yeah, I, I would urge people to look into that as well as kind of an example of of what Jared was just speaking about. Um, is there anything else you would suggest to our listeners that they might be able to do to be able to push back against this increasing capitalization of conservation? That's a question that gets asked all the time, with especially like with all these different crises that we face, whether it's the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, everyone wants to know what they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, from my perspective, I think uh, people also need to understand what their strengths are. So for me, I think um, what and what I do is I view my uh, reporting and my investigation as a form of protest against um, these organizations and against the system. Mm -hmm. Um, I think just for other people, I know what got me to this point was actually doing a lot of the work in educating myself of and actually understanding that things like conservation issues or even the climate crisis, um, these things don't exist in a vacuum. Um, And that's just where I think if more people understood 
um, that all this stuff is connected. And I know so many people are exhausted by um, our current like political um, environments here, both like in the US and in Canada and the UK in a lot of the Western world right now. Um, but there's a reason why it's exhausting um, and because it affects everything. And that's kind of where once you kind of have an understanding of what's actually going on and what you want to achieve, you just have to un then realize what you can do yourself. Um, uh, as I mentioned, like, I think I have my strengths in reporting and investigating. And mm -hmm. that's what I try to do um, from an individual level. Uh, but again, there's only so much that we can do from an individual level. And I would actually like to see more people making art. I think art is wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and using art as a form of protest. But again, these are all individual things. And, and there's there needs to be actual collective change. Mm -hmm. And it's going to have to come from um, things uh, like at the government level and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where, like, for myself and what I hope other people realize as well, there's only so much you can do by yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you don't necessarily have to be a politician or convince politicians to do stuff, but maybe try to find a community, um, mm -hmm. people that share similar values and things like that. Uh, and because that's where, what, if there are going to be changes, um, stuff is going to need to be collective action. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, it's difficult and it's kind of like this amorphous thing and you go like, what is collective action? Um, that's going to look different for different people. Um, but the one thing to know is like, we live in a society where again, like the whole free market ideology is all based on individualism. Uh, and we can't let other people just tell us like, oh, collective action is too hard or collective action won't do anything, blah, blah, blah. Because mm -hmm. um, really, if we know that the problem is capitalism and we know that um, so much of that is from individualism, uh, we need to just start by doing the opposite. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, I don't know if you know this, but I have a, another channel uh, called Positive Leftist News and we, we look at the wins that people have been achieving through collective action globally. Um, and there's always a lot of environmental wins that people are achieving. And so if you are part of an environmental organization or if you're if there are environmental um like grassroots orgs uh nearby then maybe you can look into joining that and maybe bringing up these issues you know with the other members thinking through how you might you know push back against that through your campaigns um, but even you know whatever activism you're doing if you are doing um collective action if you are part of an org and, and working towards um you know dismantling a lot of the uh, toxic effects of capitalism in all of our communities, then that is work that is contributing to this broader societal shift. And I think that's really important. Um, and then I would also, as I mentioned, think through how you could contribute to land back struggles near you or land defense. If there are indigenous nations close by that are trying to defend their lands um, from either conservation or capitalism or both. Um, you know, you could always get involved in that. And otherwise, there are a lot of initiatives and, uh, you know, indigenous-led conservation initiatives that you can support as well. And I, I can link some in the 
the show notes below. So there's just tons you can do. <laughs> um, I just always want to leave on a, a positive note and let people know that, you know, this is really dark stuff. Um, and it seems really big because it is global. There's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of powerful people involved. Um, but there's always something that we can all do. And I think that you're right that just getting informed on these issues is a part of the work as well and, and spreading the word to other people so that we have more people on our side when we decide or when we step up to do that collective action. So yeah, I just really appreciate everything that you just said um, and really appreciate you coming on today. That was so great. I'm, I'm really glad that we got to talk about this topic for our listeners. I think they're going to really enjoy it. Um, is there anything else you would like to add before we wrap up? I think the main thing is just realize that, again, conservation, uh, the climate crisis, biodiversity crisis, all that stuff does not exist in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Like all this stuff is related. Absolutely. Um, so before we go, uh, where can people find you in your work? Yeah, uh, the best place to start is my Substack, wildthingsinitiative.substack.com. Um, that's where I post my reporting. Um, that's where I uncovered, um, for all to see a $2 million disinformation campaign. Um, so, uh, that's a great place to go. And then I've recently started a YouTube channel. Um, that's also under the name wild things initiative, and I'm starting to do more commentary there. Awesome. I will put those links in the description box below so everyone can check those out. And Jared, thank you so much for coming on and talking about all of this today. This is really, really helpful. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.